0: July the 8th, 2010, a YouTube video was posted that made quite a stir on the internet. Penn Gillette, half of the famed sellout Las Vegas magic duo Penn and Teller, and a very vocal and avowed atheist, posted a late night confession type video about an encounter he had with a fan after a show. During a meet and greet, after a 2010 performance, Penn was approached by someone he recognized to be one of the audience volunteers from their act the night before. Penn said that the man was very complimentary about the show, the use of the language, and the honesty of the performance. The illusionist was struck with the earnestness and sincerity of the gentleman's accolades. Then the man reached into his pocket and pulled out a small Gideon New Testament and gave it to Penn. The man assured him that he was only a businessman and that he wasn't crazy. But that he was trying to proselytize him. As he handed it to Penn, he said, I brought this for you. I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. In the video, as Gillette tells the story, he's obviously moved by the gesture, pausing reflectively and groping for words as he described the experience. He said, He was kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes. And talked to me, and then gave me this Bible, end quote. Although by the end of the video, Penn reaffirmed his atheistic belief that there is no God, he made one point very clear. In a very candid moment, he said, Quote, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life or whatever and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that, end quote? He went on to say, quote, this guy was a really good guy. He was polite, honest, and sane. And he cared enough about me to proselytize. And to give me a Bible. How can something so crystal clear in the mind of a man that does not believe in God seem to be so muddled and unclear in the hearts of those that say they do believe in God? It is incumbent upon all those that do believe, who are convinced of the eternal destiny of both soul and body, to share as earnestly and forcefully as possible the only truth that can change that destiny from one of unending agony to everlasting bliss. Andy Meekins knew this, and as the Ethiopian Airlines jet that he was on was moments away from crashing into the Indian Ocean, he risked his own temporal safety so that others might have eternal safety. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. November 23, 1996, the wheels of Ethiopian Airlines Flight 961 were freed from the runway at Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to make the two and a half hour flight to Nairobi, Kenya. There were 175 passengers and crew on board the Boeing 767, piloted by the very experienced and capable pilot Captain Lul Ibate. For the 42-year-old pilot. With over 11,500 total hours in the air, this flight must have seemed like a walk in the park for such a capable captain. But all that changed less than an hour into the flight. At approximately 9.29 a.m., three young men, what looked to be Ethiopian men, forced their way into the plane's cockpit. According to one report, one of the men ran down the aisle toward the cockpit shouting statements that could not be understood, and his two accomplices followed soon after. The first hijacker was wielding a small axe that was already on board for emergency use. The second was carrying a small fire extinguisher, likely taken from the same emergency cabinet and wielding it like a weapon. The last hijacker was carrying a small box which he said was a bomb. Some believe that it was only the container for the whiskey bottle that he held in the other hand. It is reported that all three of the hijackers were intoxicated, Eyewitnesses to the events that day said that the men were stealing drinks while the flight attendant's back was turned. Despite their inebriated condition, they overpowered the co-pilot, 35-year-old Giannis Mekura, and shoved him back into the passenger section of the aircraft. Once they had control of the cockpit, they made an announcement over the aircraft's intercom. Speaking in Emeric, which is Ethiopian's official language, French, and English, they said that they had hijacked the plane, and if anyone tried to interfere, they had a bomb, and they would use it to blow up the plane. Although the situation was frightening and alarming, people remained relatively calm. The truth be known, this was the 17th time in six years that Ethiopians had been involved in a hijacking. Since the communist regime was overthrown in 1991, Ethiopia had been plagued by terrorist attacks and including hijackings by soldiers from the ousted government. The hijackers then made their demands. They wanted to reroute the flight to Australia. They claimed to be dissidents from the Ethiopian government and wanted asylum in Australia. Evidently, one of the hijackers had been reading the in-flight magazine that said that a fully-fueled Boeing 767 had the capability of making a flight all the way to Australia hijackers believed that the plane had been fully fueled back in Addis Ababa, but it is customary in the airline industry only to carry enough fuel to arrive at the flight plan destination. When Captain Abate argued with them that he only had fuel for service to Nairobi, they refused to believe him. Complying to their demands, the pilot turned the plane south, seemingly towards Australia. But Captain Abate was not only experienced at the flight controls, he also had some experience dealing with such extreme situations like that of Flight 961. He had been hijacked twice before, back in 1991 and in 1995. In both situations, he was able to convince the hijackers to loosen their demands and land the plane safely on the ground. In order to keep this option open, Abate followed the coastline of Africa, hoping that he might convince them to land in the Comoros Islands, situated off the eastern coast of Mozambique, between the southeast coast of Africa and the island of Madagascar. But unlike times before, these hijackers were highly intoxicated and unwilling to listen. After flying for four hours and getting dangerously low on fuel, Captain Abate made it clear what was about to happen. He said, quote, we are running out of fuel. Shortly, we are going to lose the engines. You have to let me land at this airport, otherwise we are all dead now, end quote. The shocking response from the hijacker was, quote, that's what I want, end quote. Continuing to plead with the hijacker, Abate said, quote, Guy, we have 30 minutes to live. Unless you allow me to land and refuel, we cannot make it to Australia, The only option we have is to die in the sea, end quote. The terrorists were unrelenting. Moments later, a jolt shook the entire plane towards one side. One of the engines had stopped working. The pilot then said over the intercom, We have no fuel. We have lost the left engine and we're about to lose the right. Prepare for a crash landing. That's all I can say, end quote. Moments later, when the plane reached 21,000 feet, as predicted, the second engine failed. Now, the 150-ton 767 aircraft, still moving at over 200 miles per hour, began a gliding fall out of the sky at a rate of 2,000 feet per minute. The flight passengers and crew, who had remained relatively calm up to this point, began to become unraveled when hope for a safe landing was lost. People started yelling and screaming, and some burst into tears. Many became physically sick. Then the numerous children on the flight began to scream and cry when they saw their parents overcome with fear. There was little doubt that most, if not all of them, were going to die in a matter of moments. Sitting among these passengers, no doubt with a white-knuckle grip on the seat armrest, was Andy. Forty-three-year-old Andy Meekins was from Beckingham, a district of London, England. After finishing his college education as a civil engineer... Andy surrendered to the call of God to take his specialized training to the impoverished country of Ethiopia. He began his work through the International Missions Agency known as SIEM, Servants in Mission, in 1976 when he was only 23 years old. He served as a water engineer, working on irrigation projects that would help to grow desperately needed food. Later during the 80s, with a poverty-fighting Christian charity called Tear Fund, Andy organized and trained a projects team that saw hundreds of villages and families benefit from the provision of fresh, clean water. But Andy Meekins not only invested his talents as an engineer, he was also invested in the people of Ethiopia. His longtime friend Mogus Mihari said, quote, Andy was a colleague, a friend, and a brother. He was a light to everyone, an example to all of us. He lived under the guidance of God. The Lord helped him, and all the works he started have found success, end quote. He invested in the people spiritually as well. He labored with his hands to bring water to the poverty-stricken people, but he did so while bringing to them the message of Jesus Christ. He loved the Ethiopian people and took great joy spending time with them in Bible study and prayer. It was in one of these Bible studies that Andy met his wife, Ruth, there in the city of Addis Ababa. They were married in 1987 and had three children, Caleb, Lydia, and Abigail. In 1992, Andy had begun his latest assignment with Tearfund, working in Addis Ababa as the Urban Ministries Coordinator for the largest evangelical group in Ethiopia, Kale Haywick Church. Stephen Rand, the Tearfund's communications director, set out to produce a video documentary of the ministry taking place there in Addis Ababa. Rand described Andy Meekins as very quiet and unassuming. Yet when Andy began to talk about God's work in Ethiopia, he lit up with enthusiasm. Stephen Rand said, quote, Andy's deep compassion for the poor was very clear. He longed to see the church make an impact on the lives of the poorest in the urban slums of Addis Ababa. He emphasized how much Ethiopians could do and were doing to help their own people, end quote. Later in an article that Andy wrote upon the insistence of Stephen Rand and the people at Tearfund, Andy laid bare his heart by saying, quote, Jesus cried over Jerusalem, but then he went down and gave his life there. As followers of Jesus, we should allow ourselves to cry aloud and to God for our cities, then be ready to go, directed by God, to live and speak his message of love and hope, end quote. You need to know this. You need to know that Andy was just an engineer. You need to know that he was not some brazen, bold evangelist, but an ordinary Christian, a regular husband, and an everyday father. You need to know this because it makes what Andy did in those final, falling, terrifying moments of Flight 961 all the more astounding. The screams of terror and fear all around him must have awoken the truth of the gospel in his heart. No doubt passing through his mind down well-worn paths of thought was the realization that so many around him did not have the confidence that he had to face death, knowing that eternal life waits just on the other side. They didn't know that there was someone who saves from sin and death, that forgives sins and grants the hope of eternal life to all who believe. In a bold act, the likes of which only God could give strength to do, Andy's white-knuckled grip on the arm of his seat loosened. He reached down and released his seatbelt and stood to his feet and entered the aisle. As the plane was shaking violently, Andy shouted above the rattle of loose objects and the cries of terrified passengers, quote, Many of us might die in this crash, so there's something you need to know, end quote. Andy then began to explain the truth of the gospel message with urgency and simplicity. How that we all have sinned and that God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and that by repenting of our sin and believing on Christ, we can be given the gift of eternal life. He moved up the aisle to each part of the cabin so that everyone could hear the message repeating the story again and again. Two witnesses that survived the crash said that as many as 20 people began to call out to God to save them from their sins. One of those witnesses was a flight attendant that heard the desperate plea of Andy Meekins, bowed her head in those terrifying moments, and cried out to God for mercy, putting her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. While Andy was going from section to section of the passenger seating, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, a scuffle with the hijackers broke out in the cockpit after Captain Abate tried to land the plane at the Comoros Airport. In the struggle to gain control of the craft, he missed the only chance he had to land the plane at the airport. His only choice was then to land the plane in the waters just off the coast of the island. Captain Abate knew that the best chance for the survival of the passengers was to land the plane near where as many tourists and vacationers as possible would be. He landed in the shallow waters 500 yards off of the La Beach Hotel at the northern end of the Grand Comoro Island. Witnesses said that the aircraft was like a pebble skipping across the water at over 200 miles an hour, hitting the top of the water four times. One survivor said, quote, the first bump was really gentle. The second one was really hard. The third was even harder, like a 70-mile-an-hour auto accident. The last one was like an earthquake, end quote. The earthquake the passenger referred to was the left engine that struck a coral reef, throwing the entire right side of the aircraft into the air and breaking it apart and scattering it upon the sea. Even in these final moments, survivors remember that Andy was still on his feet, bearing witness of Jesus Christ to all that would hear. It would be the last time that Andy Meekins was seen alive. Of the 175 passengers and crew aboard Ethiopian's Flight 961, 125 died in the crash or in the moments following. Among the dead was a quiet, unassuming civil engineer who happened to be a Christian missionary who saw around him more than 100 people who were minutes away from an eternal destiny that was most likely to be the judgment of God in a burning hell. And more than likely, at the cost of his own life, rose from his seat, to throw out the lifeline of the good news of God's saving grace in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. (music) Admittedly, the likelihood of the average believer in Jesus Christ finding themselves on a 150-ton 767 aircraft with two dead engines falling out of the sky at the rate of 2,000 feet per minute surrounded by terrified passengers is slim to none. Yet, in a way, day by day, all those around us are slowly but surely approaching an eternal destiny, a destiny that is determined by the reception or rejection of Jesus Christ. The call of every person that has encountered the saving grace of God is to tell those within reach that there is something they need to know. The question is, do we care enough? How can we that believe in a heaven and in a hell refuse to tell those around us because of the uncomfortable feeling of social awkwardness? his late-night video confession, Penn Jillette went on to say this, quote, If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you and this is more important than that, end quote. Penn Jillette is right. It is more important. Far more important. Andy knew this. Andy Meekins was the very embodiment of the words of Jesus' half-brother Jude, who encouraged the church to reach out with the gospel to those around them by saying, "...and some having compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh." Forgotten is written and produced by me Ronnie Brown You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Forgotten Podcast Forgotten is also available on various podcasting apps such as iTunes, Google Play Stitcher, TuneIn and Downcast Be sure to stop into iTunes and leave a review And as always